0: Hey everybody and welcome to Healthy Discourse. It's Emily here and I'm super excited to welcome back to the podcast my good friend Stacey K. Hey Stacy. Hello, good to be here. I'm so glad that you are. I wanted to have Stacy come on for lots of reasons. We've actually talked about doing this episode for a while but summer happened and there's lots going on and everything but what happened this week is um, as a part of the North Carolina Physicians for Freedom and sharing her personal story, Stacy is now viral and famous because um, of the article that's been written about her that has at my last checking been shared uh, over 10,000 times and um, has erupted a flow of emails from across the country to our organization, praising her work, our work, and begging to find new providers in their area all across the country. So that's what's actually happening behind the scenes. But (laughs) Stacey, I wanted to have you on because you're in a place now that you can talk a little bit more freely about your experience coming from the inside of medicine, working in an ICU here in North Carolina, and kind of how that all went down, and then how you've transitioned and what you're doing now in kind of this new world of healthcare that uh, many people are embracing because otherwise we wouldn't be getting hundreds of emails all the time asking for people, asking literally, Hundreds of emails saying, please help me find a new provider. I don't want to go to my doctor and I don't want to participate in big medicine anymore. I mean, people think that this doesn't happen and that, you know, maybe we're all quacks and a little bit out there, whatever. But the truth Mm -hmm. is when you have a forum that the citizens can reach out to, things actually look different. And I know that Stacy's patient load would would, um, show that as well. So let's yes. go way back, Stacy, to kind of toward the beginning of the pandemic, and you were literally on the front lines of the sickest people in our area, and what were you seeing happening from a leadership standpoint, and how was COVID kind of being addressed inpatient with these sick, super sick patients?
1: Yeah, sure. So The um, I guess I should start by saying I've I've worked most of my nursing career and all of my NP career in the ICU setting. So, um, you know, I I didn't do anything with floor patients or outpatient clinics, anything like that. Um, So it's always been ICU, um, and certainly all ICU with COVID. So, um, in my background as a nurse practitioner. Um, I kind of floated between multiple ICUs. So I did neuro ICU, medical ICU, and then a medical oncology ICU. So mm-hmm. those are kind of the three big units I floated between and I saw COVID patients and all of those units. Um, so initially when COVID hit, I honestly wanted nothing to do with it. <laughs> I didn't want to learn anything about it. I was just so aggravated. It was like one more thing on top of a very full plate. Um, And our our pulmonary critical care docs kind of took the leadership role within the hospital as far as directing treatment plans, um, directing isolation plans, directing um, family visitation plans, and all of that was done um, pretty much in conjunction with consultations with other hospitals in our area as well. So it was very much a let's all get on the same page and present the same treatment options and management and plan going forward. Mm -hmm. Um, In retrospect, I've never seen that done before. um, As far as like this lockstep approach at the time, it made sense because it was kind of like, you know, we're all going to share resources and information and band together. Um, And looking back on it, I can, I can see more sinister influences behind the scene that were kind of directing those um, decisions, but um, that's pure conjecture because I was never, I was never a party to any administrative decisions or, or anything like that. So I know there's been talk across the country about, um, you know, financial incentives for this or that, and, you know, we're going to put everybody on a ventilator because we want all the money kind of thing. I, I just, I don't know if any of that ever happened. I was never a part of any of those conversations. So, right. um, I
0: can tell I you would, on the
1: clinical. Go yeah. ahead. I was
0: going to, I was just going to say, I would say that. You know, there's been pretty reliable evidence that shows, um, I believe we discussed this before, but in West Virginia was the highest. It was $400,000 bonus for every hospitalized COVID patient at one point. So,
1: Oh, dear Lord. Yeah, yeah, I I
0: believe that was fairly Mm -hmm. well documented. I mean, of course, Mm -hmm. we don't want to overly speculate, but um, there was, there were definitely a lot of zeros behind the incentive to hospitalize COVID patients. I think we can, I think that's pretty well agreed upon at this point.
1: Yeah. And in the beginning, it, it kind of makes sense on, on just a natural level because these patients were, by the time they got to us, in the ICU, at least they were very sick. They were sick for a long, long time. It took them forever to, you know, approach anything that looked like floor ready, uh, you know, ready to transfer out of the ICU. And so they did require more resources to take care of them, you know, on a legitimate level um, Mm -hmm. than your typical respiratory illness. Right. Um, That being said, you know, I do think if we did some things differently from the beginning, it wouldn't have been so, Mm -hmm. but. At the time, you know what we had to deal with were very sick patients that were sick for a long time, and they did require quite a bit just to, you know, take care of them in the ICU setting, at least. So, um, I think a lot of that extra money is legit, but I could definitely see how you know you can easily wander into um, coercive territory with that.
0: Right. When so you kind of were there at the beginning. When did you start to? explore outside of kind of just what was happening within the protocols in the hospital and learn kind of some alternative ideas as far as treatment options and inpatient options that Mm -hmm. maybe had better
1: outcomes. Yeah. So um, taking care of these people, like I said, they're very sick. They're sick for a long period of time. And a lot of that just didn't make sense to me. Um, because COVID is very similar to SARS-CoV-1, which, you know, not a lot of people were hospitalized with, or at least not in a significant way, like we were seeing. And so I kind of just started thinking, well, is there something we can do more than what we're already doing? That's, that's doing a better job taking care of these people. Mm Um, so, uh, had some friends that mentioned the frontline critical care doctors. Um, these docs were very well respected within my field and, and others, um, they've pioneered many therapies that we've still use today for ICU patients that work wonders. So I thought, well, these are legitimate resources to look at, you know, why don't I see what they're doing? Um, and so I stumbled upon what made sense to me was, uh, FLCCC's, I think at the time it was called the IMath protocol Mm -hmm. or Mm IMath plus something math plus something like that. Um, and it was really interesting because you know they were using um, ivermectin and high dose methylprednisolone or, or prednisone is another um, similar drug and um, heparin because of uh, heparin's a blood thinner so they were using that to uh, mitigate the clotting that people were getting and the complications from that. Um, so they were they really had this very comprehensive protocol put together that kind of attacked this thing from several different angles which is beautiful because in ICU medicine, that's kind of what we do too. <laughs> so I thought, Oh, this is, this is right up my alley. Right. Um, so, um, I had heard, uh, I think through, I don't know if it was another podcast or YouTube, whatever, um, that wherever they were using this and it was just, you know, pockets here and there, um, that they had, you know, supposedly a 94% survival rate in people who had COVID that had, Treated with the Math Plus protocol. And I thought, well, that's amazing because I'm seeing people die left and right in the ICU side here. Um, And I thought, you know, maybe our pulmonary critical care docs would be open to exploring that protocol as well. Um, So I pitched it to our doctors. Um, I think it was February, January, February 2021. And I got nicely patted on the head and told, thanks so much for your contribution. But, you know, there's just no data behind this and blah, 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 blah. We're going to continue doing what we've been doing, which was um, remdesivir and the occasional Um And, you know, we just, we just don't have good data for that particular protocol. Um, and so I kind of... Ex- That response, but I was hopeful that you know maybe just maybe they would be open to considering a different pathway. Um, Let's pass that
0: just for a moment. Um, mm -hmm. What were you seeing firsthand with remdesivir and/or learning from outcomes from being there, hands-on administering or being privy to the administration of it?
1: Yeah. So. Remdesivir, what I found was it really didn't help people. Um, And we did have people that would have renal failure or renal injury after receiving that drug. But that too is also, you know, not an uncommon thing in the ICU setting in general, just because people are so sick. So, um, you know, I can't firsthand say, yes, this drug killed somebody's kidneys because there's always Multiple other factors going on that you have to consider. You can't Mm just lay that at the feet of remdesivir. Sure, I can tell you, looking back through the clinical trials that they did, and and I believe it was Africa, it's kind of horrified at how many people were injured or died after using that drug. And I was like, why are we using this? Right. Well, Uh, I mean,
0: looking back, it was a failed Ebola drug when Ebola Mm -hmm. evolved, and they're throwing everything at it. Well, let's try this. Let's try this. Let's try this. It didn't work and it seemed Mm -hmm. to make people have kidney failure even back then. And so, yeah, I think that's one of the big questions I still have is why did Mm -hmm. we decide and think that this was a good idea to resurrect it?
1: Um, Yeah. And, you you know, we weren't using it appropriately at times either. I mean, it's meant to be an antiviral drug, which are always best used early, early, early on by the time somebody got to us in the ICU, they're already days upon days into the illness. And even then, you know, we still had our docs starting people on it and it's like, well, why they're out of the viral replication phase. Oh, it's a right. protocol. And right. like that, plus, you know, a whiff of dexamethasone, which is not a good drug for lung dysfunction at all. Mm-hmm. Um, it just, none of it made sense to me. And um And that's why I explored the math plus protocol. Um, Once I got shot down with the math plus protocol, I just, I kind of got fed up because I was, I was tired of seeing people die horrifically. And I said, well, if I can't fix them when they come to the hospital, why don't I treat them before they get here and try to keep them out of the hospital? And so that's when I started doing um, outpatient telemedicine on the side uh, in an attempt to keep people from even broaching the the hospital doors.-hmm right. And
0: that is a whole other thing. and, and like you said, I, I want actually I want to pause here for just a second um, only because I think that, stories in real life matters and we can understand like everybody's heard about someone not being able to visit their loved one while they were on their deathbed. and there are many stories that make me angry. but talk mm. about, just for a second, what it was like with the families trying to support and love on their patients and the lack of access that they had to understanding what was going on, visitation, that type of thing. What were you
1: seeing that was different than any other time in your career? Yeah. So for the first time ever, they basically shut down all visitation. Um, And I think at first that was, it was a good attempt to try to limit exposures and to limit spread. I mean, I can understand why you would, you know, approach it that way, especially with it being this pandemic that we've really never really dealt with a pandemic like this before. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, I try not to, try not to harsh on the administrators too much for making those decisions um, because, you know, we just didn't know a lot of stuff in the beginning and we're trying to do the right thing um but it continued for a long time and you know these people are sick they're in the hospital a long time and they need exposure to their family members um and what generally happens and um this is what happened with covid is they kind of left individual decisions about whether or not to let families in to the charge nurse and that's a good way to do it because the charge nurse is aware of other things going on on the unit that may take precedence over letting a bunch of people in. They know what their staffing looks like. You know, Are there multiple codes going on today where everybody's just really stressed and burned out and we, we really can't deal with the extra people. Um, so I think that's appropriate. But at the same time, um, there weren't a lot of accommodations made for people to see their, their family and their loved ones. Um, there were times where we were able to let families see their loved one through, you know, the glass doors and they could wave and say hello. But, you know, if if someone's on a ventilator and on medications to keep them sedated, obviously that's not going to matter too much from, for the patient. Um, it helps the family, but not the patient so much. Um, there was a lot of iPad communication that happened, FaceTime communication, um, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I'd give my phone to the nurse and we would FaceTime communicate with family members. Um, and, you know, setting stuff like that up was, was not, um, was not a small feat because you have to work that into the day. And how do you, how do you make time for that kind of visitation and answering questions and stuff mm-hmm, with regards mm-hmm. to the other things that are happening? Right. So, um, so that's actually heard-
0: difficult. Sure, I've heard many stories of, you know, the only way that they were able to communicate with their loved one who's incredibly sick, is mm-hmm. trying to text them trying to get answers, they're yes. saying they're, they're, they're obviously not in their right state of mind, they're mm-hmm. on um, um, medications to, um, to, what am I trying to say, Stacy? to sedate them and that type of thing. So yeah. they're yeah. not really with it and they're making decisions and the right. family members are trying to stay abreast of what's going on and participate in that. Mm-hmm. And then there's, you, you're mm-hmm. having to try to be the go-between. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I've heard of countless situations where, Family members feel that their loved one consented to something that they had no idea what they were doing because of all the medications and that type of thing. And um yes, that's yeah, one of the things that I think moving forward, we've got to really consider were we Mm -hmm. were people actually providing informed consent or were we just Mm kind of going through the motions, obviously not accusing you of that, but I think that's something that anecdotally there's a lot of those stories so anyway sorry let's move Mm -hmm. along because you've got a quite a story here so um you kind of decided to step outside of your box and go down a completely other completely different route to Mm -hmm. help keep people out of the hospital what did that look like what
1: how did you get started and so forth (laughs) It was a hot mess express because um, <laughs> so, I've never done outpatient medicine, so totally new ground for me. Um, so I started with basically researching as much as I could about COVID from the frontline doctors because I trusted their information. Um, I trusted their outcomes data. It all made sense to me on a logical way. Um, so I started with that, like, how do I just learn about how to effectively treat this? Um, And then it morphed into actually ended up uh, contacting a frontline doctor to get ivermectin to keep on hand for myself in case I were to get sick because I was around all these other sick people Mm -hmm. Um, and I wanted to be prepared in case I got COVID. So through um, the frontline doctor I contacted, I came across a platform called Push Health. Um, It's really a, you know, an easy, simple, bare bones, no frills kind of platform. But it was how he treated me via telemedicine for COVID. And so I, I kind of researched that platform and said, well, I can do this too. So I ended up getting signed up with them um, and, you know, getting everything online. And so I started taking care of people. And actually my, my very first patient was a vaccine injury from mm-hmm. the COVID vaccine right um of all things like that was a whole new territory too right um so i just i started treating her and then i've, I've treated uh now over 700 patients um wow. through that same platform and a lot of them are return patients as well um and everything from um early treatment to i just want to keep some meds on hand just in case to long covid and vaccine injuries so the whole gamut the whole spectrum um, And I really kind of found my footing and found my stride, uh, starting to share information with other providers as well. Um, so we can effectively take care of people and, you know, what's working for this for you and what's working here and, you know, that kind of stuff. So it's been, it's been great. It's really opened my eyes to uh, a lot of things in medicine that, um, I kind of knew existed, but didn't know it existed on that level. Mm Um, And it's, it's kind of a whole new world. Um, It's a totally new way to practice for me. And I'm really enjoying it. And I think the patients are thriving as well.
0: Yeah. And, and within, you know, one of the things I love the most about our network is especially the height of last winter, being able to disseminate across the state, all of these patients that were looking for treatment. Like our one goal is to keep everyone out of the hospital because we found that once they went in there, it was nearly impossible to help them get the care that they needed. One thing that our dear friend, Dr. McCullough talks about a lot is there was not one hospital system or medical school in this country that came up with their own protocol With how to treat COVID inpatient or outpatient, Mm -hmm. not one. And I think, you know, I don't really have any comments on that because I think it speaks for itself, but I think it's an important thing for us to ask ourselves why? If we're in the pursuit of science and this is like, this is what we train for, right? Game on. This, we Mm -hmm. are the ICU. Why don't we have our own protocol? Why aren't we using, putting our heads together across? you know, different hospital systems or within our own hospital system, bring the best of the best and say, how can we best treat this? Mm -hmm. I think that I always assume that that's what actually would happen. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately nobody did it.
1: Yeah. Um, what I saw on the inpatient side, there were attempts at some of that. Um, like for example, early on, we did try hydroxychloroquine um but again looking back now I can say you know we used it way too late you know it's best used when it's early on by the time they're with us these people are very far into the clinical course so it makes sense why that didn't have as as good of an effect as we would have hoped because it was just used you know too late in the process um you know we did, um, work on a blood thinning protocol, a kind of a triage protocol based on lab results of who is higher risk for clotting Mm -hmm. and who is a little bit lower risk for clotting. And so we did put people on different blood thinning pathways based on those lab samples. Um, and I thought that was very smart and innovative. Um, and I very much applaud our team with doing that. Mm -hmm. Um, in contrast, there were some people at another hospital in our area who were giving plot buster medications, which is like, whoa, (laughs) that feels really aggressive, but you know, I understand what they were trying to do. And so there was a little bit of playing around with those things. Um, you know, at one point we were looking into doing a a vitamin C trial, which I was super pumped about, um, but that ended up not being a thing because of funding and, and I'm sure other administrative issues that we're all probably aware of at this point. Um, so there were, there were attempts at some of that, but the things that would have made the most difference were very much shot down and, um, you were not allowed to even talk about it. Let's not even put that anywhere in a chart or you're going to get fired. Um, Mm -hmm. So it was that kind of stuff. So I have to say, we, we did try a little bit of that on the periphery of COVID, but for the things that would have made the biggest difference, yeah, there was none of that.
0: What would you say that in your, in your practice now, um, I mean, I know there's just so much to look back on that we've all learned, but what would you say that you're seeing the most now that maybe surprises you or that? the general public just doesn't understand what a what we're facing in the aftermath of
1: all this. Um, what surprises me most, and this is the sad part of it, is that there are so many mainstream providers who absolutely refuse, and it's not so much they don't want to learn, I don't think, but they just refuse to look into actual treatment options that will help people they refuse to think and that's that's what surprises me the most because supposedly you know you would hope that most people in the medical field are pretty bright individuals you know you know did pretty well in school and excelled in science and we like science and to go anywhere, you know, in the provider level of stuff, you really got to love it. It's a labor of love because you got to get through so much education and, and crap just to get to the end of it. Right. So you would think after all of that time and investment and, you know, maybe emotional connection to your career as your vocation to help people that you would want to put in some kind of effort, um, to really go the extra mile to help people feel better. Um, And what surprises me most is, is the very callous approach that a lot of providers have had. Um, You know, I've heard subspecialists say, well, I'm a subspecialist. I don't treat COVID. And so they just refuse. I've heard urgent cares, which (laughs) is where most of these people land with COVID. You know, they're like, well, you know, come back when you're blue, heard Mm -hmm. that, or we'll give you a pack or whatever, or we're just not going to treat you at all. Right. well, and, and it's just, if
0: you're sick, you can't even see your primary mm-hmm. care provider anymore.
1: Yeah, it's, it's like the ultimate excuse that gets used for many different things in many different ways. And it's just an excuse to be lazy. It's an excuse to be mentally lazy. You know, I'm following the protocol. Okay. But the protocol stinks. I mean, what are you going to do when the protocol stinks? You're supposed to rethink the protocol. or, you know, come up with your own, like you said, Um, but they're just not willing to do that. And maybe there's a lot of burnout that goes into that. Um, But that's been the most unsettling thing for me to witness is just how many healthcare providers just don't care. Yeah. Yeah.
0: it's really hard. So um, I know you have some really great ideas for innovation moving forward, and we're not going to dig into all of that, but it does seem like There are so many ways that people are moving away from what I call big medicine, the the corporate conglomerates, that kind of thing. There does seem to be a shift back to private practice and also using a hybrid model, which is kind of what we do at our practice, or moving more toward like direct primary care, where you pay um, monthly or maybe per visit or that kind of thing, kind of going back to how physicians and providers used to work, where it's like, Oh, we have a visit and you pay me like back in the old, old days before insurance was everything. And, Mm um, and it seems like patients really love that because they know, first of Mm -hmm. all, they know what they're paying.
1: They're Mm -hmm. either
0: paying this much per, you know, visit minute, hour, whatever. They know what they're paying. They know what they're getting. And mm-hmm. all of this bureaucratic red tape in the middle that ends up causing problems for a lot of people is gone. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, it might look expensive, but outside of catastrophic things, a, a, a lot of times patients save a ton of money. And yes. there does seem to be a great new demand for that. And I think, you know, things like this that are consumer driven, which as patients, we're consumers. Mm-hmm. Do seem There does seem to be some really great potential, and I'm hoping that that will evolve into what we always love to all brainstorm about with a bigger system of independent hospitals and that kind of thing, too. And it might sound like a pipe dream, but I think that we see things moving in the direction where it is possible. So I'm hopeful for that type of thing. And I think that we already see this shift. It might not be seismic yet, but I feel like it's happening.
1: Yes, I I feel that too. I mean, I cannot tell you how many of my patients are like, when are you going to open a clinic? Mm -hmm, (laughs) And and they just want to leave, you know, their doctor or leave the system that they're in um, for something that's just more transparent, easier to access. I mean, it's a breath of fresh air when you can pull up a site like, like Dr. Bream's site, Bream Medical, and you see, this is how much this costs, you know, to be a patient here. I mean, uh, us as Americans, we kind of thrive on that. Like, you know, give me the numbers kind of thing. Gosh, if people had any idea how insurance companies work and the way they're subsidizing each other, it's just, it's insane. Sure. Um, And it's a complex math problem.
0: (laughs) It is. And, and I will say some of our, our, Our legislators that we align with here in our state have tried to work on price transparency and have all of the powers that be with the big money, bring in all their lobbyists to shoot it down. And we need to ask Mm -hmm. why, (laughs) why would that be so terrible that consumers actually know what they're paying for? So, um, Anyway, well, Stacey, I'm very, I'm, I'm grateful for your friendship, my way. And I have loved getting to be good friends with you and your husband, Dave, and the work that you guys are doing. And it's been so fun to work on all of this together while the mountain ahead of us is still m- quite steep and large. I think that oh,
1: yeah.
0: there has been a lot of, of progress and momentum started. Mm-hmm. And while we might not like everything that's happened, I think that many people inside of medicine, they might not speak out about it, but yes, inside of medicine, and certainly consumers and patients are looking for something better, and I think that's actually ultimately Mm -hmm. a good thing for healthcare for our country moving forward.
1: Yes, well, there's definitely better options out there. They're not as plentiful as as the healthcare systems that we're used to knowing and now hating, Um, but they are there, and there's more that are you know, forming every day. So, That's right. gosh, if people can hang in there, um, I know they're going to have more options, especially in North Carolina. Just you know, having a finger on the pulse of that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, there's definitely movement under the water. So, there hang is. in there, and you know, people are coming. It's just, it's going to take time because we're building it from scratch, and it's, it's the old school becoming the new school. I love that. That's a <laughs> that is a great quote. Like you know the
0: move that there was an exodus out of private practice, but it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's an exodus back to private practice. It's happening everywhere. So
1: absolutely. Anyway. I want to get paid with a chicken sometime. <laughs> that's yes, right. I love that. <laughs> yep. That's right. <laughs>
0: well, thank you so much for joining us and sharing more of your story and we'll catch up again soon. I'm sure.
1: Yes, we'll do. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Mm-hmm.